Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today is going to be our Halloween episode. Now, you know I love Halloween. I really love having a themed episode, and this year is no exception. We are going to look at serial killers in antiquity. So not serial killers from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. We're talking about serial killers from 1,000 years ago. Back in the Greek and Roman times, there were people running around, hacking people up, uh, but it was a little different back then. People didn't have this definition of what a serial killer is, especially in modern terms. There weren't really modern-day forensics. Uh, they didn't really have a modern-day psychological understanding. The culture was very different. And yet, these people existed. Well, how do we know about this? Where do we have these stories? Where do we have this research? Well... I got you covered there. I'm going to talk with Dr. Debbie Felton today about her book, Monsters and Monarchs, where she looks at serial killers in antiquity and shows us exactly how uh, they existed, who they were, um, and even some of these strange myths. Some of them have an origin story that includes serial killers. It's going to be a great episode. I'm very excited. We're going to get right into this. So first of all, Dr. Felton, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, so, you know, this is really interesting because I was looking up, I was trying to find information about you, and the only Debbie Felton that came up was the Debbie Felton of the Academy of Dance. I was going to say this. Is that you? Is that your secret, secret no, life? when no, you? That, uh... is, that is not me, but that is all over the place. Uh, you know, despite what I just said about um, being on about, um, you know, eight or nine of these things since the book came out, I, I really don't Made me feel lot. real special there, by the way, Debbie. Real special being eight or nine, but we're, we're going to make this the best. Anyway, continue, please. No. I'm, just, I'm just saying that I, I don't, I'm not used to this kind of self-promotion, uh-huh. and I don't have my own, I don't have my own separate website um i'm not on instagram or social media it's 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 mainly that i don't i just don't have time to keep track of all that stuff my main job is teaching so yeah it's fair i mean you know most people shouldn't have time for that much social media (laughs) uh but it's funny i I would have loved i mean you mentioned archery you know we did a quick little test here um and in the test i learned something very interesting is you are an art are you an archer or do you just take archery classes no, I'm just learning. I just started this past summer. I mean, I had done it a little bit when I was much younger, but I basically, when the pandemic started lifting a little bit, I was just kind of, oh my God, I really need to be outside and in a different setting other than walking around my neighborhood. I'm right, so right. sick of my neighborhood. I don't think I drove my car for like a year. <laughs> I think I my gas tank in 13 months. Oh, wow. So, yeah. You had to get yeah. out. Oh, I really needed a change of scenery, and they offer archery classes over next in the next town over in this beautiful mm. park. And I was like, "I'm going to do that." I think it's <laughs> great. It, does, it doesn't involve you know having to like run around or anything because <laughs> I not doing <laughs> archery on horseback or anything is what you right yeah yeah. yeah yeah. And since I'm relatively uncoordinated, I thought a sport where I just have to sort of stand stand still and focus <laughs> on certain. 
<laughs> posture. That might be, be ideal. Might be ideal <laughs> yeah. for someone like me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. So I do this other podcast uh, about pop culture science. Uh, you know, to do it's weird to do self promotion for myself, but I do it all the time. You're going to learn a lot from me, Debbie, about self promotion. <laughs> uh, but F Triple G B T, fascinating gadgets, gizmos, gear based technologies. Anyway, we have a scientist on there, Dr. Michael Denon, and he took up archery recently. So yeah. I've learned quite a bit about it. Uh, it seems like a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's like darts except with a bow, I guess. You really have to I'm, – I'm not good at that stuff. I'm good at – I can shoot a gun, which the bullet comes out faster so your accuracy can be better. When it comes to a bow, I feel like having to time where that arrow's going is tricky for me. Um, but this is perfectly in line with your brand, if I can be an absolute dummy and say something stupid like that, because you're really into folklore. Uh, you know, you, you've got to, from what I understand, I'm not, I don't want to board your mouth. I want you to explain what you do um, through your own words. But you study classical folklore, you know, um, which includes archery, I'm sure, is in folklore somewhere, uh, and with a focus on supernatural creatures. I, I, is this true? And if so, how did you come to, to this as your career? Oh gosh. Um, well, that is a that's a good question, and I don't want to bore you with too long of an answer. But <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I sort of um, I think some of the influence came from my dad because uh, he was always interested in ghost stories, and we tended mm-hmm. to have a lot of ghost story collections around the house when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. he also liked scary movies, and we'd watch, you know, what, what was the, who was the host like Seymour, somebody, you know, and, and then and then uh, you know, no, about- Sven Sven Gulli. There's Sven Gulli. <laughs> There's uh, yeah. Elvira, those kind of people, that, that ilk. Cat. And then El- Elvira was after Sven him. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Anyway, sorry. yeah, yeah. I sort of grew up with all that stuff. And um, I also uh, grew up reading classical mythology. And so just somehow, you know, I eventually found my, found my way into the field of classics and um, discovered that there were ghost stories, it, you know, that sounded very much like modern ghost stories, like the haunted house stories sound very much like, you know, what we hear these days. And, uh, you know, from there, it just was like, oh, and all of the monsters and classical myth and just sort of the um, the weird and uncanny in classical literature. Um, just so, so it sort of stemmed from being interested in ghost stories in my youth, I guess. <laughs> That's the shortest the shorter version, I guess. Well, is the longer version that you were a changeling as a child? I mean, I feel like maybe that had something to do with it. You know, is that any, is there any, I'm starting that rumor. Is there any truth to that founded or unfounded? <laughs> You'd have to ask my parents. <laughs> what, your fairy parents or your human parents? <laughs> you yeah. didn't think I knew that, did you? Look at that. I know I stuff. Know, man. I, I did just also uh, finish a book on fairy tales in the ancient world. So that's, that came out this summer too. It was a uh, cultural history of fairy tales in antiquity. Mm-hmm. You like so, what uh, I did there? I tied all together. I know a lot about your work. <laughs> uh, so, what was your favorite supernatural creature growing up? Was it a ghost or was it something else? Well, I don't know if I had a favorite. I would say that I liked ghost stories the best. Okay. Um, mainly because I liked the sort of eerie um, tone to them rather than outright gore or mm. blatant monsters that had definite issues and shapes and right. actions. Uh, there was just a lot more spookiness with the, mm. uh, with the ghosts than with the, something like Cerberus with his three heads or the Hydra with nine heads or however many extra limbs they all, they sure. all had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, there was just something about um, 
the literary ghost stories, you know, mainly Victorian and early 20th century that I just, I really liked the atmosphere. It was spooky, but not terrifying necessarily. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's interesting because we're going to talk about serial killers in antiquity, because that's what your book, Monsters and Monarchs, is about, which is a little different than the ghost stories. But, you know, when I was, there are very few things on you on the internet, as I mentioned, but there is an article from October, uh, we're in your 20th anniversary of the publication of this article coming up. Uh, and it was about your interest in ghost stories and monsters from Greek and Roman myths. So this is, you know, this is 20 years ago. Um, and, and it's interesting because you, you kind of had that, you know, you had that spark back then and you were at the cutting edge, as you, you know, as you always have been uh, with this type of analysis, uh, which I just found really interesting. And in it, you said in that article, you said you didn't have an explanation for werewolves, but I think you may have cracked that nut in this <laughs> book about serial killer myths um, and maybe some of the stories that were made up that include supernatural creatures that were really an explanation for these horrendous deaths that occurred uh, way back when. I mean, is, is that uh, what do you think about that? Well, there are a couple of things I should probably say there. One is that another book that came out in the last year was specifically about werewolves in ancient Greece and Rome. And that's by Daniel Ogden, who's a professor of classics at the University of Exeter in the UK. Okay. And he he works on a lot of this stuff too, like uh, ghosts, witchcraft, uh, magic. And his latest book was specifically on werewolves. Uh, and uh, so... I think he deals with some of that also. But what you're referring to, I think more specifically, is this idea that killings that were attributed to, say, werewolves or creatures that were thought to be werewolves in early modern Europe could just well have been a way of of describing what we would now recognize as serial killings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was, uh, was it John Douglas who wrote Mindhunter, and then the series uh, is based on that. There's a... Uh, I think he's the one who speculated at one point that the early modern European stories about witches and werewolves uh, are maybe are, way, are ways of that people used to explain these m- serial mutilation murders because they didn't want to think that fellow humans could do anything like that. I mean, they you know obviously there were packs of wolves roaming the roaming the forest. Yeah, <laughs> I would assume. Era. Yeah, I wasn't there, but yeah, I think still right. are. But it it sounds like uh, you know what the werewolves do, and the, uh, you know the sort of cross between a human and a wolf uh, does seem to get at the the you know the dual nature of of people, or at least some people, in a way of expressing human anger and bloodlust, right. uh, <laughs> and maybe covering for serial serial murder in, in at some point. It's, it's, I thought it was an interesting theory that he had. No, it's great. I actually want to know how you got into all this weird stuff. You want how I got into it? First of all, I'll ask the questions around here, Debbie. <laughs> uh, you know, I had a similar path that you did, I think, because my grandmother, who was a, a devout Catholic, believe it or not, was really into ghost stories and just kind of, you know, these strange, unexplained mysteries. And she got me this book when I was a kid. Uh, I should probably put a post a picture of it. And it, it inspired me a lot. Um, it's a little, uh, they used to have these books at the checkout counter. They were like little, I mean, like, I'm showing this on on our YouTube video, but it's like maybe about this big. I'm not doing a very good job showing the size of it. Just a little handheld book. And inside were 12 weird stories like the Bell Witch, uh, the Strange Booms. Um, There's a disappearance of David Chase, I believe. This guy just disappeared into the ground. And things like that just always interested me because 
who doesn't want to know the unexplained? Who doesn't like mysteries? And the kind of the weirder it was, that's the more into it I, I was. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, one of those things that was always from childhood, I think. Um, and one of the other things, you know, when I was in high school, I had this great teacher who he taught U.S. history. But he was really into sociology, um, psychology, criminology. As a matter of fact, I remember once he was telling us that in a different life, he would have been like a, a criminal profiler, which is why I love that you mentioned John Douglas. Because, you know, when we're talking about serial killers in antiquity, one of the things, there's two things. I want you to define antiquity or the ancient world. What does that mean? What time frame are we talking about? But also, what is a serial killer? Because it was at, you know, in that high school class that we learned about criminal Criminology. We learned about profiling. John Douglas, obviously, one of the first profilers. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, <laughs> if it's not, we're going to pretend. Uh, or you can correct me, whatever you'd like to do. Um, but this was really interesting to me. And that's why this this idea, I want to get to this, this really cool idea of how long serial killers have really been around. Um, and I think we have to start answering those questions first. So let's start with antiquity. What does that mean? And then what is a serial killer, at least in your definition? Okay. Um, well, so for antiquity, um, um, my book is specifically serial killers in classical myth and history. And uh, that's still stretching the definition of the classical period for antiquity. But <laughs> sure. I'm looking at about 1500 years worth of material. And, and I should just say right at the front, I, I seriously doubt that I found every single example, but I found a lot, you know, enough to put together, at least in a first book. Sure. So from about you know, the 8th century BCE, when the first Greek literature started being recorded, like the, the Odyssey, down through the 4th and 5th centuries CE. Uh, so, again, a little over a thousand years worth, uh, somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred years worth of ancient Greece and Rome specifically. Now, I didn't look at other areas of the ancient Mediterranean, so I haven't looked at, say, biblical history or the ancient Near East. I didn't look at Egyptian or other North African. I felt I had enough material to go through just with Greece and Rome. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so so that that's the period and the places that I'm dealing with. And for serial killer, well, th this was like the big problem that I had to struggle with for the book because it's really a modern concept. And that phrase, I think, uh, didn't even come into existence until around 1980. And I don't think it was John Douglas. Maybe it was Richard Robert Ressler. One of, one of the other FBI guys, I think, sort of came up with the phrase. You'd think I, you'd think I could remember, but <laughs> it's okay. It's like so, so many things going on at, this, at the same time in terms of this burgeoning field of profile, as you said. Um, so the phrase serial killer wasn't even... A thing, you know, uh, until about around the 1980s. Uh, so it's not like the ancient Greeks or Romans said, ah, we've got a serial mutilation murder on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> right. what, they, what they were able to do was, was notice uh, people who... Uh, who fit what we would now call the description or characteristics of a serial killer, which is someone who kills people, um, you know, usually with a, a period of time in between each more than one person, obviously more than, more than two, um, often by the same method, often the same type of victim, but and not necessarily always. And, and I think part of the difficulty too is that the modern definition of serial killer is constantly changing and being updated. And it depends which law enforcement agency's definition you want to use. Because <laughs> I think the FBI, like they used to say it had to be at least two or three and in different places. But like the Zodiac killer's first two victims were together in a car, mm. if I'm remembering right. And then mm. there were other locations. And the definition used to include it has to be away from the home. 
but so many serial killers brought their victims home. I mean, there Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, John Wayne Gacy, and of course, you know, just lots of other examples worldwide. So the profilers are constantly updating uh, what uh, could be included under the definition of serial killer. I think the one thing that there's mostly agreement on is that they're definitely different from mass murderers. Mm -hmm. So the people who take the guns and just kill a bunch of people all at once, the psychology seems to be very different. Uh, Although, again, there's been a lot of reconsideration these days because serial killing seemed to reach a weird peak in, you know, from the 60s to the 80s or 90s. And then in this century, there's been a huge decline, um, but an increase in mass murders. And so people are like, well, <sighs> has forensics just gotten so good and the genetic tracing of material that serial killers are discouraged from going about their business? And are they are they instead turning to mass murder? But yeah. my impression from what I've read is that psychologists think, no, that's that's just not the same thing in terms of what a serial killer's motivations and needs and desires are as compared to a mass murderer. Anyway, I'm I'm getting a little off track. No, I think it's great because no, the fact that you got off track is perfect because it tells you exactly how difficult this is to wrangle from a definition uh, yeah. in our modern era. Now, I what I love about that is in antiquity, in the time period you talked about, Greek and Roman times, you had people. Here, I think we're overthinking it in the modern era because really, what we're saying is this is someone who kills someone for fun. Uh, which can, you know, which can include power, sexual gratification. Uh, you know, there's a whole list of reasons to do it for fun. And they do it one or two at a time, right? I mean, that is the basic definition of a serial killer. Now, you can get into the nuanced whatever, uh, you know, but killers are killers. Killers who kill for fun, sport, or whatever. And even, you know, even mass murder fits into that. A lot of people at once, it's kind of the same reason. Some people are angry and they shoot a bunch of people, whatever. I like that it's a little more simple in the ancient times because that helps to show, you know, because what I thought that you proved really well in your book is that there are a lot, I'm, I'm going down the list here, a lot of interesting stories about, you know, classic things, even these supernatural creatures that really are there to explain what human beings did because we didn't think that human beings were capable of this. So it must have been a monster. Uh, you know, really quickly, you know, in, I think it was the 1890s, uh, Jack the Ripper is the, really the first serial killer, I guess. H.H. H. Holmes was the first American serial killer. Um, I did a great episode on, on, on this show about H.H. H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper. There's a guy who believes they were the same person. Uh, so I did one on on both of those. Um, really I interesting. That theory. Yeah, it's an interesting theory. Um, it's a very interesting theory. But so that is what, like the modern serial killing. What I love about this, you know, we look back um, – when you were when you were really analyzing this, you brought up a great point. I want you to go into this a little bit. Is that when you are looking at these stories, when you're looking at these real life characters like Nero, Caligula, uh, La Costa of Gaul, which we'll get to. So I hope I'm saying that correctly. Ghoul, Ghoul's better, but I think it's Gaul. <laughs> right? Yeah, Gaul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but these are real people. But you mentioned the hurdle is that analyzing the psychology of people who existed thousands of years ago without the level of forensics we have now, without the level of in-depth interviews, you know, no one's sitting down right across from Ed Kemper discussing why he, you know, decided to kill all these co-eds. Uh, I, it's it's a hurdle, right? And so I'm curious what you, what you did to kind of overcome that hurdle and how you came to the conclusions you did with the information that you had. Okay, no, I mean, again, a, a great question. And I think what I constantly had to uh, remind people, you know, as 
throughout the throughout the book was that we cannot say definitively that this or that historical person was absolutely definitely for sure a serial killer right what we have to say what we can say is that the descriptions the characterizations of some of these historical figures sounds a lot like what we would call serial killing and so right. even if Nero wasn't really a serial killer the Greeks and Romans knew enough about this type of crime to describe like their enemies or people they didn't you know people they wanted to smear politically right. uh, so and physically smear them make yeah, other yeah. people look bad by right. using the sort of terminology that we would associate with serial killing and even if they didn't have that phrase for it it's still like this guy didn't just kill one person out of anger he made a habit of it and that's particularly horrible right and with some of them like i think nero and at least one other we do have probably the closest thing we're ever going to get to psychological background which is some description of their childhood and and how they progressed from lesser crimes to greater ones until they finally became these serial murderers. And let me say one thing here, because what's interesting about that is, especially back then, I mean, you know, social, we talked about social media, right? That you don't do social media. Well, neither did the ancient Greeks and Romans, right? So there isn't this exhaustive list of events you did throughout your life, pictures, whatever, right? So the people who were the most visible were the the monarchs, you know, um, the, the or the people in charge, not necessarily monarchs, not necessarily kings and queens, but the emperors, the leaders, political leaders, they were the most visible. They had the most people writing about them. But, you know, it, it makes you wonder if there were other people, you know, from the peasant class who were, who were doing a lot of this stuff as well. As you mentioned, the bandits, uh, the roads, the uh, road bandits were, were part of this as well. Uh, that's really interesting to me because one of the things I gathered from your book uh, which is really the theme of this show, and I think of your book in general, is that when it comes to serial killers, psychopaths, killing, this seems to be a fundamental part of your DNA. You know, we look at, there are, you know, I did a whole episode on the friendly psychopath, Dr. Jim Fallon, James Fallon, who's at UCI, who is a psychopath from a brain standpoint, but he just doesn't murder people that we know of. These people exist, functional psychopaths, sociopaths exist. It's a fundamental part of our DNA, it's interesting to see, you know, just because we consider ourselves more civilized than 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago, um, it's not the case. This seems to be a part of being human, Debbie. Did you, did, you, did you see this as well? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the reason that I started looking into this in the first place is because I, I just kept seeing things about how, oh, serial killing is a product of the modern world. It's because of our depraved lives and um, along with, um, oh, lack of mental care and people being released too soon from uh, mental institutions and that sort of thing. But then, you know, and, and and people did seem to sort of think that, well, Jack the Ripper was really the first known serial killer. Uh, but the more I went into it, the more I could see that, that, you know, the people who really study these things say, oh, but look at these cases from 14th and 15th century France and Germany. And that's where we get some of those werewolf delusion uh, potential stories from, oh, this guy actually thought he was a wolf and had to go and kill people because that was his nature. Um, or Vlad so, the Impaler, who that's where we you know kind of get the vampire myths from. You know, or, or uh, Catherine of Bathory. You know, these are people who oh, like blood. Yeah, you know, Catherine I mean, Bathory, sure, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and then, 
you know, some of these people don't fit the modern definition in the sense that normally a serial killer wants to work privately and not be caught. But when you've got these people in positions of power, there's then this other tortured question of are they just abusing their power or do they really have a serial killer mentality, but they don't have to hide it? Right. That's what Uh, I was going to say. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So it's it's tough to, to parse all that, tease all that out. And I'm not sure it's necessary to, to do so either. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so the idea that this was somehow just, uh, you know, a fault of modern society really didn't sit well um, with me. And I think that, you know, when I was starting to look into this, it was evident that other people were too, like the psychologists were reconsidering. There's a book on evil genes, um, you know, all sorts of, well, wait a minute, isn't this just a part of how people can be wired? And something just is is a little different. And what's the connection between, you know, sociopathy and autism, for example? Oh, look, mm. it's not, you know, if you do the brain mapping, it's not quite that different necessarily. There's something going on with empathy there. The, you know, what part of the brain is in charge of empathy? Um, but yeah, most sociopaths, you know, do not aren't murderers. I mean, you know, they're not, they're just, they're just wired differently, but they're, they're functional, but they don't go around, you know, killing people. Um, anyway, so, so the, the idea was then, well, some of these stories I've read from the ancient world sound a lot like serial killer stories. Um, and so I sort of took, took it from there and, oh man, I, I really did hit so much skepticism because this is not what people think of when they think of, um, you know, the field of classics. Well, I mean, some of the (laughs) comments I got when I tried to give papers at conferences on this topic, uh, really were were very interesting. (laughs) Oh, I found this to be, I mean, I found it to be fascinating. I thought you 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 linked together some things that were really interesting. I thought you I thought you revealed a truth that uh, is is important and is not important just to understand these stories because these stories can be viewed on many layers. But an interesting um, revelation on fundamental truths in human nature, which we kind of know they exist. But as you go through human history back thousands of years, I think it's this is actually um, enlightening. To be perfectly honest with you, um, you know, I mentioned this on the show before. You know, my stepdad was. I'm pretty sure a sociopath. You know, I mean, he didn't murder people that I know of, but he lacked empathy completely, did not care about people, humans, anyone else around him. So I had kind of a firsthand look as I'm an adult looking back, seeing how these people really um, can get through life. And in some ways, what's interesting about it being a fundamental part of human nature is that it, it does provide some sort of evolutionary advantage. I'm actually I'm surprised. Yeah, Sorry. I, I, I'm just actually surprised there aren't more. I think it's like five to ten percent. I think that's roughly where we are. Could be wrong there. I'm actually surprised it's not more. To be perfectly honest with you. Yeah. No, I'm really glad you mentioned that because this is something that I was thinking as well, which is that there are a lot of advantages to having that sort of mentality or lacking empathy or conscience or yeah, (laughs) we're guided by it so much anxious, you're going to be a lot more able to cope with things. And you know, the the amount of, um, or the percentage of the population, at least in the U.S., that it you know that uh, shows up as depressed and anxious in polls is really alarming. And there, you know, as you're saying, I think there may ultimately be some evolutionary advantages to being you know closer to sociopathy on the scale of whatever scale that is in yeah. terms of of empathy, um, because yeah, I mean the the 
when, when you look at, um, you know, pe- people are having more and more difficulty coping with everyday life and things are like going to hell in a handbasket or whatever. There's right. like, you turn on the news and there's nothing good. I know. Um, and, and it's really hard to cope because you sort of want to say, well, what can I do to help? And it's, it's pointless because there are too many bad things going on and there's no way that anything I do will make a difference. And if you lack empathy, I would think that a lot of that goes away or that at least you could look at it more logically and say, oh, well, malaria is one of the biggest problems. Let's focus on that one, you know, for example. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, we're, we're going to get into the, the, the Greeks, the Roman stuff in a minute. I want to target one of the Sphinx I want to hit to in a second. But you, you, something you mentioned made me think the advantage. So, for example, really quickly, you know, me, I believe population growth is out of control. You know, we are, and now we've got legislation going through that's going to promote people having large families. This is a terrible idea because this is what's, this is what's pushing climate change. This is what's, there's too many human beings on this planet, but you can't say that without sounding like you don't care about human beings or that you're against family, whatever. But if you don't have empathy, and you're in power, you can make those types of decisions that aren't emotionally charged. I mean, obviously, I have a family. Uh, I have brothers and sisters, you know, uh, and and I love them. But, you know, if I didn't have them, I would be like, ah, who cares? But then that's me as a normal person, right? But if you don't have empathy at all, like my stepdad, he would be like, oh, well, the fewer people, the better. I can put legislation into place that can reduce our population in the next two generations. And you don't have problems making those decisions. And ultimately, whether we want to admit it or not, those are the types of decisions that, decisions that are actually good for the humanity as a whole, but not necessarily for humanity localized and individual families. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I tend to be, I sound like a jerk, but I tend to be absolutely right, Debbie. This is not, you know, you're coming to a conclusion, you know, that I think many people have already. (laughs) Well, I mean, um, it is difficult to try to save the planet by restricting individual rights, I suppose. Fair enough. This is the honest struggle yeah. right yeah. yeah 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 no well i mean yeah benevolent dictator i think is is the way to go when it comes to government so i think you can you can control humanity and go in a positive direction by restricting people's rights you know we just don't like to have our rights restricted who does right um but when it comes to having your rights restricted there's nothing that is closer to that than getting murdered uh senselessly <laughs> right and so one of the first things you mention in the book which is great because it's it's got a couple of twists here and i'm talking about the sphinx of thebes um this is interesting because i think under the john douglas definition in your book you talk about how she kind of fits that description a it's a woman uh, B, it's a mythological creature, uh, and C, it really fits a lot of these things that you're talking about. It's similar victims killed in a similar method in the same geographical area. Um, you know, it, you mentioned in your book your theory is that maybe this was a real woman, a, you know, one of these road bandits. Uh, they got to have a better name than that. Uh, one of these road bandits who kill travelers going from city to city. There's a lot of interesting stuff to that because you have this idea of a riddle. And maybe this is just, you know, pop culture, serial killer kind of stuff going on. But, you know, you have a lot of killers who have one either tease the police or, you know, show their power over their victims by giving them clues or, you know, like the, the movie Saw where you have people trying to solve these puzzles that, you know, that are for the yeah. amusement of the killer. And this riddle is kind of like an early version of that. At least that's what I saw. Uh, what did you see when you were looking into this? 
Well, I was, um, I'm not actually the one who proposed that the Sphinx was in reality a bandit woman. One of the things that I thought was so interesting and bandit Is that the one? Is it bandit woman? Is that what it is? Is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> it was actually another ancient Greek. That, because even when people back then were telling these mythological stories, there were also, you know, other people at the same time saying, that's ridiculous. A creature like the Sphinx couldn't possibly exist. This story must be, you know, sort of like along John, John Douglas's lines, the story must have been created to explain a series of killings around the city of Thebes. And right. it must have been some bandit woman who lived in a cave and maybe she had a little band of people helping her, but she would come out and she would attack travelers and they just happened to, the she just happened to target young men particularly. Mm. Um, so that theory was actually put forth, I think, in the third century BCE, maybe fourth oh, century wow. BCE, by a di- another Greek who was known for rationalizing myths of his own people. I like this guy. Well, Because an interesting point here I want to stick in here, just an interesting point before we continue, is that that's what myths were for. They explained these odd occurrences or natural phenomenon. So it, that makes sense. And I love that someone of the time period was doing that as well. Yeah. Well, and the Sphinx came to Greece from elsewhere. I mean, it was in the Near East first, and there, of course, there's this whole tradition of Egyptian sphinxes who were mostly male, I, I think. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think we have to be careful when we try to impose any single explanation on what these mythological monsters are for, because they can sure. represent so many different things. Fair enough. But I just thought it was so much fun that, like, an actual ancient Greek had rationalized that sphinx story by saying, look, she was a roadside robber, but, you know, she didn't just rob people, she killed them, too. And that's, you know, that's <laughs> just uh you know and oedipus was finally the one who who killed her right. you know sort of what this how the story went but even before the sphinx was part of the oedipus story the figure of the sphinx in greece was associated with the killings of young men specifically um the depictions sort of show her kind of squeezing the life out of them so so Jeez. with her name sphinx meaning strangler or that's one of the possibilities that it means is just tightening your, your grip and strangling um so Oh, like sphincter. You know, I just got that. Like, well, yeah. is that right? <laughs> Not to go blue, but that makes uh, sense. Okay. Yeah. So there was already in place this kind of characterization of the Sphinx in Greece as associated with the death of young man, of young men, and maybe suffocating them somehow. Uh, and and she would appear in, on on their graves, like that would be a maybe a, a graveyard decoration or something. Even so, uh, yeah. So I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other things the Sphinx can represent, but she didn't actually enter the Oedipus story until fairly late. The earliest versions of the Oedipus story don't actually have the Sphinx in them. Um, but yes, and, and as far as the riddles go, yeah, I mean, the Zodiac Killer in particular was sort of notorious for sending those coded messages, some of which are still recently being decoded. Yeah. I think this um, year, I think this year or last year, one of the, one of the last ciphers was decoded by like a husband and wife, like code yeah. cracking team. I think. Yeah. I think that was last year, but I think there might even have been another more recent right? one. You're abs- again, you're absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> um, yeah. Know your stuff. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. I mean, it's it's um, you know one of the things I wanted to mention here is that the th- the crazy thing about the Sphinx is that you you mentioned a couple other things in in your in the theory about maybe this was actually um, a female princess or someone in the royalty who was killing men to 
that stood in her way. You know, I think there were a couple of analogies to um, maybe this being a real person, which I thought was interesting. Also, I love that you said road robber. Uh, I think that that is a much better description than highway bandit or whatever stupid thing I said. <laughs> so we're going to go with road robber for the rest of the episode. It sounds too close to road runner, though. Oh, <laughs> and Coyote, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know what? I love Wiley Coyote. Uh, I mention him all the time, and I did not make that connection. And now we can't use Road Robber. Uh, we cannot use Road Robber. Oh, I no, love that. Cannot. Oh, so good for it. Oh. <laughs> uh, but, but she's female, right? And that's interesting because, you know, you mentioned that sometimes some women were able to get away with this because no one thought that they were capable of this stuff. And, you know, one of the, th- the things we mentioned early on was La Costa of Gaul. Locusta of Gaul. Locusta of Gaul. Locusta of Gaul. Yep. And that's interesting. I did a whole episode on poisons, and she was mentioned in there. I mentioned her briefly, um, but she was a big poisoner, may have been the first documented serial killer that you mentioned. But tell me a little bit about her and what makes her so special in this world. Well, I think... um She's such an interesting character. And in a sense, she's also a foreigner. She's from Gaul, which was, you know, which became France, but was definitely not Greece or Rome. And this was this was during the time of the, the Roman Empire. And um, so she was famous as a poisoner. And the story is just kind of weird because, I mean, they knew she was poisoning people. And she did get imprisoned sometimes for doing that. But people wanted her services. She was that good. So she, yeah. She was that good. Yeah. She would keep getting out. The, yeah. the imperial family, in particular, wanted her services. Right. So Nero, you know, a lot of this happened during the time of Nero specifically, and basically, you know, he hired her to try to get rid of his uncle Claudius, supposedly, and his nephew Britannicus. And part of the question with Locusta is, I mean. She, because she was so famous as a serial poisoner such a long time ago, like 2,000 years ago, she does tend to show up in encyclopedias of serial killers, um, mainly because she's identifiable. She's a specific, probably historical person, uh, how much mythology has, or the legend has grown up around her. And the question is, can we call her a serial killer when she's really more of an assassin for hire? We don't know of a bunch, you know, killings that she necessarily did herself, but these volumes about serial killers will put her in there just because, well, this is the closest thing we have in antiquity or one of the closest things we have in antiquity to what might be considered a serial killer. And, um, just these sort of, I don't think adventures is quite the, the right word, but the attempts, the attempts that, uh, you know, she went through to get the poison just right, especially with Claudius, I, I think, you know, it didn't quite work the first time. He just had indigestion and uh, diarrhea and Nero was, Nero and Agrippina were not too happy. So they were like, uh, this didn't quite work. You need to come up with a, a better, a stronger one. Uh, so the story is, I don't think they're intentionally humorous, but they can definitely come across that way. Nero somehow was notorious for never getting things right the first time, right? So he tries to kill his uncle Claudius, according to the sources, which are heavily biased. He tries to. It doesn't work the first time. Gets it the second time. He tries to kill one of his wives. You know, he's a, so, so he's more than one over the course of time. He tries to kill one of his wives. First attempt doesn't work. Second attempt, maybe third attempt. Uh, he tries to kill his mother, Agrippina. Doesn't work. You know, he he sends her out on a pleasure cruise in a boat that's supposed to fall apart, which it does. But it turns out she's a good swimmer. So she makes that was it fun. Back. It's like a comedy of errors. I mean, it's like a, a dark gallows humor comedy of errors, when, especially when he's trying to kill his mother. It just it shouldn't be funny, but you know, depending on how it's told, it, it's definitely like you say, dark, dark, 
dark humor there, black comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Nero is an interesting figure for you know the way he's characterized as sort of a bumbling murderer. <laughs> like just, again, keeping in mind that the, the sources are pretty biased against against him. So. You know, that's why I never thought of him as a bumbling murderer. But the way you describe it, I mean, that kind of does perfectly. He always seemed kind of insidious and dangerous, and he's always like trying to knock people off. Like he seemed like a serial. He definitely has serial killer tendencies. Uh, but I never thought of him as bumbling. But I guess so. But one of the you know. Along with the Lacosta story and with Nero, one of the interesting things is when uh, they were trying to kill Britannicus. I might get this 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 wrong, but she mixed up a poison for him. But he had you know food testers as people did in those days. So he has a they they purposefully bring out this hot liquid. The taste tester tastes it too, way too hot. So what they do is to cool down the liquid, they're going to put cold water in it. And to get by the taste testers, because it's already been taste tested and apparently someone must have tasted the water, they put they poison the water in th- that they use to cool uh, the drink. And that's how they, they knock them off. Uh, I, exactly. I thought that was pretty, uh, you know, pretty clever in some ways, but it seems like there should be plans in place to, to avoid that. It seemed like a, a loophole that should have been closed. Where's the water taster? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, is this tasted ahead of time? I didn't quite understand that, but I mean, is that that's basically the story, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you got it. You're absolutely right. Uh, th- now that one, I didn't think I was going to get right. <laughs> I have to admit. Um, now, one of the things that I, another thing I wanted to get to was, you, oh, actually, let let's stick on uh, let's stick on Nero for a quick second because there was one thing you mentioned that I thought was really interesting. As you called him the Norman Bates of ancient Rome, especially with his, you know, the, with his relationship to his mother. Let's talk about that a little bit. Not only because Psycho is one of my favorite movies, uh, but I thought you made some pretty interesting parallels here. That, um, you know, I think that we should get into, which made me wonder, you know, not to kill the end of the story here, but we made me wonder if Norman Bates actually killed his mother. I don't remember from the story if that's what happened or if she died of natural causes, but there's a, a lot going on here. Yeah, no, and I should say that I, I don't think I'm I, I don't think I'm by by a long shot. I'm, I'm not the first one to call Nero the Norman Bates. I mean, you got to be like me. You got to take credit for this stuff. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> more than other people do. Yeah, I guess. I guess you you have an acad- you have an academic career to think about. Don't listen to me. Anyway, you, all right. <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'll be retiring soon. <laughs> all right, all right, forget it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no. In the in the sense of, of uh, uh, he's been called the Norman Bates of, of ancient Rome, and I definitely wanted to use that because of the uh, the similarities in the um, uh, alternately abusive and. Um, um, over indulgent or over over controlling well, yeah. mother, not, not indulgent. But so Nero, uh, from a very young age, like his father was gone a lot. So you've got the absent father who's not there as an influence. But his mother Agrippina was gone a lot too. And Nero was basically raised by a couple of household servants who had no clue what they were doing and didn't really care. And Agrippina comes back eventually, and Nero's like. I mean, there's a little bit of like, it's a little sad. It's a little pathetic because he really is like, oh, great. Mom's back. And I'd love to have a relationship with her. I'd love to know her a little bit. And she just couldn't give him the time of day for a while there. Um, But then she, but she was still sort of controlling so many aspects of his life. Like, here are my plans for you. And I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And you're going to be emperor. And here's how we're going to do it. Uh, So he had this very, you know, torturous relationship with his mother. Um, 
and clearly fixated on her in a very unhealthy way because he was known to, at various points, dress up servants like his mother and have sex with them, again, supposedly, you know, according to the, the authors, <laughs> sure. the ancient authors, who were clearly not fans of Nero. And he had a concubine of the women who resembled her, right? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, and he does, as we already talked about, eventually kill kill her or have her killed. I mean, he doesn't do it himself. It's not there, but he when the boat, when the boat fails because she can swim, um, the boat plot fails because she can swim back to shore herself. Uh, he just, he basically is like, whatever, I'm just going to, why am I trying to be subtle about this? I'm just going <laughs> to send soldiers I'm emperor. Yeah, just kill her. Just knock her off. What are, gonna, what are you going to do? I'm emperor. So he sends a bunch of soldiers and, you know, she realizes that she's cornered and can't do anything. And so according to the, the sources, she says, yes, yeah, strike me here in my womb. You know, so they run her through her her womb, where she produced this monstrosity of an offspring. Right, that her, <laughs> right. Yeah. If you're gonna do it, do it here. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a, it's a crazy story that you know. And Nero's an interesting character, and we don't have a lot of time to go into him because he's like a whole episode unto himself. But I I found that to be just really interesting how. Um, he just really paralleled that Norman Bates story. Because, I mean, the psycho is based on Ed Gein in some ways, but it felt very much based on Nero as well. Um, one of the other things, you know, we mentioned how um, there were some poisoning plots that didn't quite go through. Some people just had diarrhea and, you know, vomiting, or, or maybe not even diarrhea, just upset stomach. And this was an interesting thing that people did, um, was they would take little bits of poison to make themselves, to get more immune to, to those types of things. You mentioned one in, in the book, uh, King Myth, uh, Mithrates oh, the Fourth of Pontus. Mithridates. Yeah. yeah. He, cause he was his, so his father had been poisoned, and so he was ingesting a lot of poisons to make sure that he was never poisoned so that he'd have a, you know, non-lethal poison so he would have his immunity built up. But he's an interesting character. Yeah. I mean, the real expert on Mithridates is Adrian Mayer, who wrote a book on Mithridates that I think was a, I think it was a finalist for the National Book Award in Nonfiction or something. And I mention this because um, Adrian is sort of a colleague and a mentor, has been a colleague and a mentor to me. And it's basically from her book that I, you know, drew uh, some of the information that I, that I put in mine. And, um, yeah, if you can ever get her on, that would Yeah, maybe I will. Like, yeah. But, um, it's a great story. But yes, I mean, that's what Mithridates was famous for. He was an enemy of Rome. And absolutely, like you just said, because his father was poisoned, Mithridates came up with this idea that uh, if he would just take little bits of poison at a time, he would build up some sort of a natural immunity. And so he would do this with, I think, a lot of different kinds of poison to try to get immune to most of the main ones that were available or used, generally used at the time. And it seemed to, to work. Uh, so, uh, yeah, but poisoning was uh, a very popular method of trying to get rid of your enemies. It wasn't just something that women used, which later that was the case. Um, you know, was, women seemed to resort to poison because they, I mean, they've always had more access to the food supply than men oh, have that's anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in antiquity, uh, men would, you know, maybe use poison on other men also. It was just a more surreptitious way of doing it. And until poisons could be traced, which I think was only about, I don't know, when did that start? 150 years ago or so? I can't remember exactly when. But once it became easier to trace poisons, the popularity of poison sort of, you know, drastically fell <laughs> fell off. Okay? Yeah. I think well, yeah. um, these people tried to find more untraceable poisons or make more untraceable poisons or say, oh, he accidentally ingested the rat killer that we left out for the road. 
<laughs> right. Or I mean, I mean, Putin is a master poisoner. You know, I mean, for the reasons you mentioned, is you don't want people to get caught. But I mean, his poisons are so advanced and nuclear, so they didn't quite have access to yeah. to polonium, yeah. you know, <laughs> polonium pellets exactly. back then. Yeah. I mean, and you, to get access to that sort of thing too, you have to be in a certain position, uh, you know, a power to 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 be able to access uh, those really, really. Uh, newer and advanced and hard to trace poisons. They're not possible. What's interesting about him is that you they're so they're not traceable, but they're so unique that they can only be traced to him. Right? There, there may <laughs> not be any paper trail back to Putin, but it's clear that there's only one person who could have done it. You know, so in some ways, yeah. it being untraceable is almost a hindrance in the reverse way of capturing someone. You know. Sure. It's like, look, oh, look, all of these people are from Russia and they all spoke out against Putin and they all have the same <laughs> symptoms. Gee, what a coincidence. Yeah. yeah hmm. I wonder. Yeah. I wonder. Um, right. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, poison was the, the top, um, you know, the top way to kill people, uh, both men and women. You know, we typically think, as you mentioned, the food supply, um, you know, and I'm speaking in broad terms here, but, you know, women aren't exactly the more physical. They don't want to get their hands dirty with, you know, strangling someone, whereas men are a little more aggressive. And I think especially in antiquity, uh, they were definitely more apt to use closer personal means to dispatch their enemies. Um, but this is, you know, I want to talk about this really interesting story about Hercules that you mentioned, because you made some great, um, some great connections between um, so basically, Hercules, the 12 labors of Hercules, he was running around doing cool stuff, you know, to, <laughs> that's the quick definition. But he encounters, I believe, looking at my notes here, he uh, encounters six, oh, maybe this is Theseus. I, I want to make sure I get, am I, it, you know, that's the thing is they're, they're very similar in terms of running into these highway, uh, highway robbers. I can't say road robbers, <laughs> but Theseus was sort of like, those stories were kind of based on Hercules. The okay. six Specifically, six are Theseus, like you said, but but Heracles also has similar encounters. Uh, you but you probably you might be thinking of Theseus, so like with the Procrustes story. I think I am. Yeah, I think yeah. I am. I think I am. Let's talk about that because what I like about this is he encounters. I'm going to call them road robbers. He encounters six road <laughs> robbers, but they're all very different, and in they're similar in the serial killer traits, if I can say that. But they're they're each very different in their methods, um, and and they have their nuances, which make them unique. But let's talk about this. How how did you you know what do you, what did you see here? How did you make these connections? Or was it somebody else, Debbie? Did someone else make these connections and you put it in your book? What's going on here, Debbie? I think a lot of us came to the same conclusion at the same time. <laughs> so I was looking at them as serial killers, while as it turns out, other people were also starting to think along similar lines. Sure, sure, Let's sure. All right, all right, fair enough, fair enough. So, um, yeah, so in this case, um, the connection is the highway, uh, which we have already seen in a couple of other cases, but I'm reminded like, of the FBI's Highway Serial Killer Initiative, which uh, I, I like to say that's not a very good name because it sounds like, let's go out there and get people <laughs> on the highway. <laughs> right, yeah. When, you know, what they mean is it's an initiative to try to find out and more about and stop and identify. A, a lot, because but the thing is, the highway is so anonymous. It's so easy to kill somebody. You don't know where they're from or where they're going and no one's going to look for them or notice they're missing for a long time. Why would anybody think you had done it? You know, you're, if you, especially if you're a trucker, you know, and you're not from there either. So, and you're out of there, you do, you do your dirty right. deed and then you get on the road, you're out. I mean, you know, exactly. don't leave, leave no trace. 
Yeah. So that seems to have been going on, you know, again, over 2000 years ago. And the Theseus story, I think, gives us some good examples of that. I mean, so does Hercules, uh, Heracles. But um, the ones in the Theseus story are so much more specific and include a bit more detail. Mm -hmm. As you say, they're they're unique and very weird. Mm -hmm. Definitely. (laughs) So so, uh, Procrustes, I think, is one of the best examples because he seems to have what we would probably think of nowadays as a murder kit, sort of like what Ted Bundy had in the back of his VW bug when he was caught. So Procrustes... Procrustes has like a saw and a hammer and a knife and, you know, a few other things, probably some rope. Procrustes would approach people, you know, on the road and say, you look tired. I mean, I'm elaborating because we don't really have like a fully fleshed out story. We just have bits and pieces of stories about him. Take creative license. Take as much creative license. Don't let the truth get in the way of the good story here. There was no actual dialogue in the story. (laughs) But imagining that he would say to people, you know, you look tired. You got a long road ahead of you. I got a house just off the road here. Would you like to, to stay the night? You know, you can just use it as a hotel or whatever, you know, it's like a small hut, whatever it was. We don't even know. Right. But, but he was evidently charismatic, friendly enough that people would be sure I'll go, go with you. And in antiquity too, especially in like mythological times, mythological stories, strangers were supposed to be welcomed into your home and fed and bathed. So there was this sort of guest host relationship that was really important in antiquity. Um, And you didn't expect to be murdered by a complete stranger in their house. You thought this would be a genuine offer according to say Greek tradition. But anyways, you know, so he would get people into his house, Procrustes would, and he had this fixation on the bed. So if the guest was too long for the bed, he would chop off their limbs or saw off their limbs. You know, again, depending on the story, it was usually an axe, I guess, rather than a saw specifically. So he would chop up. Tie him down first, I I imagine. Otherwise, they would jump up pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, that's why I tend to think that his murder kit probably had some sort of rope in it. Although I don't think the stories specifically talk about him tying them down. But you have to figure, why would they stay still for this um, unless he drugged them first? Fair enough. Yeah. But again, the stories do not tell us that those details. If they were too short for the bed, he would hammer out their limbs so that like the bones would basically be broken and he could just like stretch them. Um, so this, this is different from like the, the, the rack, you know, where you stretch people out with the strings and the, and the pulleys or whatever, the wheels. This was just like, he would hammer their limbs until they were just so broken that he could just pull them to fit the bed. (laughs) And there's no explanation of why, like why, why the bed? Why do they need to fit the bed? What's going on here? Like, like, did you have a a cradle that was like, (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. We we do not know why the fixation with the bed or what that is even supposed to represent. I mean, there may be some kind of psychosexual undertone as there often is, uh, you know, um, with modern serial killers, but we just don't have enough details in the Procrustes stories, any of the versions, to to give us a clue about this. But it is interesting to, to note that element of it. And the other thing is that clearly people knew that this was happening and they would just say, don't go that way because Theseus was warned that he would encounter these people. Um, But some people were just like, I have to take my chances. I know people are disappearing off the road and that they're clearly criminals at work here, but I can't afford the boat. You know, I have to take this road. It's the only road that you know, to travel from Southern to Northern Greece. So, yeah. And, and there, you know, again, there were several others that these just encountered and the one with the pig, I think is another really strange one. That's super weird. Yeah. That's a really strange one. 
Yeah, so one of the other uh, encounters she has, one of the other six encounters Theseus has on this road as he's traveling from southern to northern Greece, well, to central Greece, he's going to Athens, but it's either a giant man-eating pig or it's a an elderly woman who has control of the giant man-eating pig. Right. <laughs> and, you know, because she's too old and feeble to rob the travelers herself, so she sticks her gigantic sow on them. Uh, you know, again, just what? I mean... Very strange. We know that that you know pigs are can be extremely dangerous and they will eat anything, um, but why you know why a giant pig and an old woman in, in control of the giant pig? So, boy, I wish we had more details about some of these stories. Yeah, that one's strange because it's a weird story, and even if you look at it from mythological terms. What is it trying to explain? What is it trying to tell? Is that the one weird story where the you know the original author just decided to get creative and it has nothing to do with anything, right? I mean, maybe that's the case. It's just you know creativity gone wrong. Or is it like you've postulated that there's some sort of connection to uh, a woman? Maybe you know maybe someone did have a pig that would eat people, as you mentioned in the book, uh, and as I learned in one of my favorite movies, Snatch. You know, pigs were raised to dispose of bodies; they'll eat just about anything. So it would not be uh, completely out of left field to have a large pig to eat and dispose of bodies. Should you know after you've killed them? I mean, disposals—that's uh, an important thing. You can kill someone with poison. But what's that? It's sustainable. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's green and it stops population growth. I'm on board with pigs eating humans, obviously. Um, if I didn't have empathy, that's how I would solve our population crisis. But it's it's an interesting connection, you know? Yeah. And I, I think the other connection I made there was in terms of like the movie Lake Placid where, you know, spoiler alert for like, I don't know, a 20 year old movie here. But Betty White is this seemingly harmless old woman. And it turns out she's the one who's been training these giant alligators or crocodile, I forget which they were, yeah. to like attack people. <laughs> well, I, I respect, spo- I'm glad you put a spoiler alert in there. I'm very respectful of spoilers. <laughs> I don't care how old the movie is. You know, these myths go back thousands of years, but not everyone has yeah. read them. Um, people like to know the ending, so I appreciate that. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's it's bizarre. You know, whenever the old lady is the, the one who does the killing, it's always a surprise, uh, but it shouldn't be because it's a pretty popular twist now. Uh, there's one other thing I wanted to mention because... I found this to be really interesting, and that was, um, you talk about the serpent shepherd story, and what I like about this is is that it's it's about, well, tell the story, and then I'll tell you why I've, I found it interesting. Okay, so if this is the one I, I think you're referring to, is there's a bun- there's a group of travelers, and they are, they stop to rest, you know, around noon, um, just on a little hill under a tree, and a shepherd comes by, well, I mean, one, one guy comes by, and I think he's a shepherd, and he says to them, don't stop here, don't you know where you are? And, and he just rushes off without an explanation, and they are all sort of looking at each other, going, right. "What?" WTF? Uh, I think know, is what they said we back then. They're like, <laughs> yeah. and then this group of, of resting travelers again, a road is the setting for this. They're approached by an old, an old man who's like walking with difficulty with a cane for support, and he got and he says to them, "Oh, can you help me? I was traveling with my nephew or whoever, and he just fell in a ditch, or my grandson maybe it was. Anyway, the kid fell in a ditch, and I can't get him out. Can one of you come and help me?" So one of the young young strong guys in the group says, "Of course, old man, I will help you, as you're supposed right, to do." Sure. <laughs> And uh, so the Good Samaritan goes off and uh, he doesn't come back and they're getting nervous. The group's getting nervous. And so one of the other ones says, well, I'm going to go see what happened to the first guy. 
And he comes running back and he's terrified. He says, you're not going to believe what I just saw. The guy's dead and there's this giant snake eating him. <laughs> and then they're all just terrified and they just like run to the next town basically. And, and, and they're just like, we don't care what's going to be after dark. <laughs> right. We're out of here. Right. We're out of here. They make the smart decision back then. Not like in modern horror films where they just go in there and all get killed. They're smarter back then. Yeah. I know. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, so they just didn't know what, you know, what was going on. And this was absolutely terrifying. And the implication in the story is that the old man was somehow a shapeshifter changed into this giant man eating serpent. And it's a very localized thing too. Um, but again, we don't get a lot of information about what's the origin of the snake. Was it originally supposed to be guarding the area? I mean, where are the warning signs? You know, where are the no trespassing signs? So, uh, but yeah, it's just another one of these, He's it, it, it sort of go, it sort of shifts from the human to the monster in a really interesting way that kind of ties together a lot of the things that I'm trying to talk about in the book, which is that, well, you know, human monster or actual physical creature monster. Is there a difference when it comes to the way the Greeks were portraying? Did they just see people who kill other people as mo- this monstrous you know, this, this inhuman or unhuman, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that this story kind of encapsulates in a very simple, it's a very simple story, but it's got so many interesting elements and it's a perfect way to close out the show because as you mentioned, it does it does kind of tie together everything that you're talking about in your book. I'm having, I don't know if these are your ideas or someone else's ideas. I don't know where I stand on that anymore, Debbie, but I'm going to give you credit for this. <laughs> I'm going to say that they're your ideas. And so I love this because it kind of does all of that. But there's a couple of interesting things here, which brings us back to the present, which is, you know, he, he feigns helplessness. You know, um, it's an old man who claims to be help, helpless. Um, this, you know, the, um, we see him turn into a serpent, is that him turning into like his killer self? I mean, is the serpent represented? I mean, is he? I don't think he's really a shapeshifter. I think he is this monster. If we're going to go with with your theory here, there's cannibalism, there's mutilation uh, by the serial killer, uh, and and you mentioned Ted Bundy. I think when talking about this story, which you know, he had a cast and he would pretend that he was helpless to get women to help him, um, you know, help him with Carrie's books or whatever, and then he would beat them with the cast, uh, which is you know, yes. and and when you think about if Ted Bundy existed back then, you could see how he could become the old man who'd be turned into a serpent, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, and a serpent also has, you know, you, you mentioned you didn't talk about the biblical aspect, but the serpent has a lot of symbolic meaning, which makes sense that they would use a serpent that he turned into, despite the fact of how he killed people. It all kind of just bring, I mean, this just, this is everything that you're talking about boiled down into one story. Yeah, I think it's, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you get it. You get it. I mean, if it was somebody like Ted Bundy, you could sort of, in antiquity, you could sort of see how a story like this might have, you know, been, how his story might have morphed into something like this. And of course, in Silence of the Lambs, the Buffalo Bill character um, that does something similar with his his cast as well, I believe, if I'm remembering that that right. Yeah, I think he's helping someone with a, a, a getting a sofa into a into a truck and he whacks him over. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and that was uh, again similar to, to to what Ted Bundy had been doing with his cast, or sometimes it was another um, sort of ailment that he pretended to have. But it is how he would lure the young the young women in. Yeah, I, I mean, it, like I said, this encapsulates everything. And what I got from your book was that this type—I mean, it, it's this book is very similar to how you got into this type of stuff. I mean, it's it's not there are gory details, but the the, the terror that this book presents is not in the details themselves but in the the revelation that serial killing is a fundamental part of our dna somewhere somehow and has existed in antiquity to today uh one of the other quick things that adds you know credence to this to this um to this conclusion is that you mentioned that roughly i think in one of those uh where uh theseus or whatever is fighting those six road robbers one of them is a woman so it's one in six and i think you said that typically one in six serial killers is a woman uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know if these statistics hold <laughs> That's up. That's a great coincidence. <laughs> it may be, but nonetheless, I'm using it to say that you're, it makes your argument even stronger. Just the parallels. It it means that this is this is just a fundamental part of our DNA, part of being human. And to me, that is the most terrifying revelation of this book. Um, and I imagine you must have come to a similar conclusion, or maybe you're a secret serial killer um, who thought this was, at least you're not alone. I don't know. Well, I think the good news, and this isn't something I was able to put in the book, but the good news seems to be that another possible reason for the drop in serial killers, you know, in this century is that there's been more what we might call early intervention in terms ah. of when you do see behavior like like exhibited by Jeffrey Dahmer or by Nero, say, if you notice a child who really seems to already lack empathy, maybe you can get a hold of that. I mean, now we're going the direction of Dexter. Actually, sure, let's weaponize is, him is what I say. Let, let's put him to use, put him to work. <laughs> but uh, the idea that if you can recognize um, that you're dealing with some sort of uh, um, sociopathy or psycho. A psychopathy early enough, maybe you can intervene and redirect the behavior or a teach teach them to emulate empathy, even if they don't really feel it. Um, so that's, that's just, again, just another theory about why, you know, there's been a drop in serial killings, either that or they're just getting much better at hiding themselves. Like they, they know what the investigators are looking for now. And it's like, okay, I won't choose all the same kind of victims anymore and I'll go to different States. And, right. You know, so who knows, but it's been an, it's been a very precipitous drop. So there must be other things explaining it besides just that the serial killers are getting better at it. Well, I, I, I will tell you this. This is going to come as no surprise to any longtime listeners, to the, the, the I would say, almost career cynic that I am. And I think given the number of real-life television crime shows that are on, the number of serial killer shows, the number mm -hmm. of people where lear everyone learns from their history, and if all we're doing is showing all these serial killer shows, documentaries, movies, we're just showing people what they did well and what they did wrong. And so and <laughs> I think we're. I think what we've done is we've created a super educated generation of serial killers. <laughs> so I think they're out there. They're not dropping off. None of this, oh, we intervened early. That didn't stop this. They're out there. we got to look out. You know, hide your kids, hide your wives, because uh, they're coming to get you. So they've got to 
for all the modern forensics. That's that's the thing. Like shows like CSI are like they catch every serial killer because the science is so good. Right. Yeah. I I think I I think uh, I don't think that's true. But that's my personal opinion. Um, even though you said that I'm right a few times, I have been wrong. I don't know that I'm wrong on this one. But if people want to learn more, if people want to read this book, which I highly recommend that they do, we've already established you're not on social media, but I imagine people there's got to be some way that people can get in touch with you or find your book. Okay, so I happen to have a copy right here. So I have to come to your house. So you must come. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it is, it is on Amazon. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's easy to order it online if, if people are, are interested. So it's – and I, I, my only website is really my faculty page, uh, you know, at the University of Massachusetts where I teach in the classics department. Um, but my email is there. Um, my home address is not. Good. That's wise. That's wise. You've learned. You've learned. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. I, I mean, I think that that is a great way to end it. It, it both, both, uh, it doesn't, it, it shows exactly what your purpose is, why you want to do this. And I think you're right. Uh, you know, you've made this book very accessible, almost too accessible, um, because I think that this is going to educate the next generation of serial killers. But let's hope it doesn't. Um, we don't want to learn from our past. I don't think I don't, they will. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's, I don't think they would get much out of it themselves other than to maybe be reassured that they're not that, uh, you know, it's not just them. <laughs> it goes way back. It's not just like something that happened, you know, to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's true. Um, there, someone will get something out of this book, be you killer or normal person. Um, but you know, I I, I love the book. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. I learned so much. Uh, it's a great job. Thank you again for being on the show today. <laughs> Dan, thanks for having me, and thanks for like being so thorough with your knowledge and questions. That's what and all I do. That. That's what I do. I, I like to surprise people with how much I know about their book. Uh, but until next time, I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you've got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, never fear. We got you covered. You can go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can find every place you can locate us and find one that fits your lifestyle. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go because it is also there that you can find the show on YouTube. Yes, we have a live video version of the podcast now on YouTube. YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn is where you find it. And that is not the only place where you can find the show on social media. We got links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and of course, Instagram right there. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.